It's Danielle Patrice, author of Neuroscience, the Ecosystem of Domestic Violence. Listen to When Dating Hurts. You think you know someone, but you don't know anyone unless you experience domestic violence. Domestic violence is not a situation to take lightly. And just because you think you know that person, you never know what mask they're wearing at the time. Listen to When Dating Hurts, and you'll know what to do in a situation like domestic violence. The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know. And that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens, and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. Thank you for your support. I was recently interviewed by David Keck, David is the host of The Surviving Podcast. It's a powerful platform dedicated to providing hope, healing, and education to individuals who have endured personal trauma and abuse. The Surviving Podcast aims to shed light on the struggles faced during and after abuse experiences. This is part one of a two-part interview with David Keck. I came across a story of a gentleman named Bill. I reached out to him. He responded immediately. We had great conversation. The story he's going to tell, it's a topic that we have discussed, but not with this type of scenario. So, Bill, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, David. It's really great to share my story with you. And your own personal story really is difficult to listen to. But then again, I know how you've come out and in in a good spot as best you can, as best anyone can. It doesn't leave you. But yeah, I'm really happy to be able to share with you and your audience today. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We, We were talking before we even hit record that one thing that just really impressed me with you and what you're doing is we could feel sorry for ourselves. We could sulk. We could get into a depression. We could find unhealthy ways to try to medicate, which leads to destruction, or we can control the ugly that happened to us and hopefully turn it into something beautiful. And you are the author of When Dating Hurts. And then after the book, you started a podcast called When Dating Hurts. Am I right with the timeline? Exactly. So why don't you give us a bit of an introduction? Tell us a little bit about you and where you're at, what you're doing. I could start in about 50 different places. Up until the time I got a call from detectives on June 3rd, 2005, we were a family of four. My wife and I, my daughter, my son. My daughter had just graduated college 20 days before that. So the four of us were together for that. She was 21 at that time. My son was four years younger. So he was towards the end of high school at that time. 
and everything was really in good shape. On the evening of June 3rd, 2005, I got a call from local detectives who needed to meet with me, and they said they needed to tell me something. Now, local de- I say local detectives because we live outside of Baltimore, and my daughter at that time was just outside of Philadelphia, where she went to school, and she had a new apartment there. They met with me. I met at a grocery store with them. I, they came to the house. No one was here. My wife and son were at someone's graduation party away from here. I was with my parents at a restaurant, and I was driving back towards the house when I got this call to meet, and they said they couldn't tell me over the phone what they needed to tell me. I had no idea what it was. So I got a parent's worst nightmare standing by the automatic doors of a grocery store when they said that, sorry to inform you, Mr. Mitchell, that your daughter, Kristen, was murdered today by her boyfriend. And needless to say, you're on a different life trajectory, not knowing what any of that would bring. The first thing that went through my mind was having to tell family members. And the second thing was all those different parts that you would expect that would be coming, whether it's holidays or her getting married to somebody one day, grandchildren, whatever that is. I just kept, I thought of it as clicking circuits out of a circuit board, just flip, flip, not going to see any of that stuff. So that evening was all about telling other family members. The next day was about searching for cemetery plot, visiting funeral homes, making arrangements and waiting for them to eventually ship her remains from Philadelphia down here so we couldn't make a date until the medical examiner had been through what he had to do, all those things. It's just, it's a horrible nightmare. And just through defense mechanisms, you just keep plodding along. You just do that next thing you have to do and try not to think about what actually happened to her. So that was the beginning, David. When you were talking about your your mind just having to clip out everything that, obviously everything that she was robbed of and mm-hmm. the beginning, the start it. of her life. And then you all were also robbed of so many things. And I'm sorry is not a big enough word. So when you were with the detectives, were they able to provide you enough information and at the local grocery store? How their how main work? thing was to tell me what happened and to then urge me to sit in one of their cars and get on their phone and talk with a detective who was working the case in Philadelphia. So that's where I got a lot of the information as to at least literally what happened, okay? Meaning she was stabbed to death in her apartment early this morning, and he is being held. I don't know, really not a whole lot more than that. The detective I spoke with had been to the scene in her apartment. He actually was the one that did an interview with the guy that killed my daughter that morning. The guy that killed my daughter did what he did, which was he stabbed her 55 times. And then it appears to the medical examiner and those who know that he then self-inflicted a number of wounds to make it look like it was a self-defense situation. One of the things that he did was he slit his own throat and he possibly was trying to kill himself or possibly trying to make it look like the evidence was insurmountable that she started it or she tried to kill him and he just tried to defend himself. I should add that she was maybe 5'3 and he's maybe 6'1. And I had met him at the graduation, the only time I had seen him, and he looked very strong. 
And I should also add that when I met him at the graduation and shook his hand when I first met him, of course, I had no idea where this was going to go. My initial thought was I never want to tangle with this guy. And I've never had an impression of anybody like that, that I actually pictured fighting this guy. So that was strange, very strange. She was 21. He was 27 or 8 at that time. So he was a full-grown guy, wasn't just another college student. So what happened was he was urged by his own family members when he called them and said that she started this fight. He had to defend himself and thought maybe she was dead. And he was still in the apartment when he called. And they kept saying, you should get to the hospital. If you've got, if you were banged up that bad, you should go. So he did. And at the hospital, they actually stitched his neck and worked on some of the other wounds. But the fact that they stitched his neck, once a medical examiner got to him, they couldn't say whether it was self-inflicted or not because it had changed. Oh, wow. It looked different because it's been worked on. Most people who were who study these types of things. And after interviewing him, we're pretty sure that he did all of this to himself. And my daughter was not that type of person anyway. She was the type of person that her friends said, actually, as a compliment later on, that she was a coward. That was their way of saying that she hated violence, that if something was going on, someone's yelling too much, she would just get out of there. So the idea that she started a fight or that she took a knife and went after him and he had to fight her off is a total creation. Early on, it was difficult to get up and get speeches about it. To tell you the truth, not so much about the details of what happened. I found it difficult to get up because when people would ask questions, they would ask questions about why does dating violence happen? Who does it happen to? What is it? What is abuse? What is domestic violence? And I wasn't, just because my daughter was killed, didn't make me an authority on any of that stuff. I couldn't get up and talk about that. I couldn't talk about halfway houses, and I couldn't talk about why abusers abuse. And I wasn't afraid of questions after a speech about what happened. I was hesitant, let's say, Hmm. because I didn't want to fumble around or didn't have to keep turning to someone off to the side saying, would you like to answer that? So once I got to the point where I felt like I could answer any question that came my way, then that was good. One of the things, too, that I like about what you said about the fact that you survived, you could manage it back to the truth, your story back to the truth. One of the things that I found was happening in our case was I felt good that I could help to manage my daughter's legacy from girl does four years in college, gets a job with General Mills, is going to get a company car. She was going to be a a junior sales associate. She didn't get some big exec job, but she had a good start. And she went through food marketing at her school, which is St. Joseph's University in Philly. It would have been, wow, what a tragedy. She goes through four years. She graduates 20 days later. This guy murders her. End of story. What a sad story. Okay, what else have you got? And I feel like part of what's happened then is her legacy has gone into her story has helped and saved other people because we have used it to open doors for us. And there's a lot of credibility comes when you're one step away from the person that was killed. And if you know what happened and if you know how to talk about it. So with that as uh, giving me a lot of momentum, it's put me in a position where I can get up in front of a large group. I didn't plan to do this, but I was in New Orleans two weeks ago in front of 2000 people at a, at a uh, national conference for the National Organization for Victim Assistance. Normally, or in the past, I'd be pretty nervous about getting in front of 2,000 people with a microphone on, but I loved it. I really did, because I had them. I had them right there. 
the palm of my hand listening because it's like this guy knows what he's talking about. This guy has been through the beginning, middle, and end of this. Yeah. Glad that people are starting to talk about trauma and mental health and these hard topics because I don't feel as a society that we actually get to the core of the problem. We just put band-aids on things, right? Let's put yeah. this guy in jail for a few days. Let's let but until you get to the core of these problems, then they're just band-aids and and it doesn't take long for those band-aids to fall off. So I'm glad that you have spent 18 years and I'm sure will continue to do what you and your family are doing. Was there any history that you all found out about this guy, like any kind of previous assaults or anything? That's a great question. And, and I really mean that sincerely. Yes, is the answer. Now, one of the things that Kristen, my daughter, learned about this guy, something like two weeks before he killed her, was that when he, he was like, again, 27 or 8, 10 years prior to that, he and a friend who still was his friend when he was 27 or 28, he and a friend were down on their luck. They owed a lot of money to different people. So they robbed a bank. Okay. They just, they robbed a bank in Delaware. They went in there and this guy walks in. I call him Nick in the book. So I'll stay with Nick as the boyfriend, not his real name. But so he walks in with a pellet gun, which if you're on the receiving end of someone sticking a gun in your face, you're not thinking, whoa, 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 this is a pellet gun. This is not a real gun. Besides a pellet gun can kill you anyway. But sure. Anyhow, they robbed a bank and they got out with maybe 800 and they took off and they actually got away with it. So somewhere over the next two months, he bumped into a guy. He he took his half of the 800, went to Florida for a while. And darn if he didn't run into a guy in a conversation in a bar where some guy who was actually on the run, who had robbed some bank in Florida and got something like 30,000. That gave this guy, Nick the courage to go back and do it better this time. So he and his friend went and they robbed a different bank. And I'm actually hard pressed to remember, but I feel like they got out of there with $18,000 or so. Again, with the pellet gun. The problem is they took so much time sitting in a blue Camaro outside of the place that people in the town, in a small town, took down the description of the car and the license plate because they just felt, why is this car sitting here? Anyway, they went in, they came out, and when the, the teller hit the button, silent alarm, some people actually ran in and said, I've got a description, and they got the car, and he went to prison. He did five years, federal prison. So he had only been out, I guess, about, I don't know, three or four years or so, and he was still on probation and things. Okay, so that's one knock against him. But after he was out, he met up with a girl who he dated, and he dated her for about a year and a half. And he follows the pattern, the template, I call it, that every abuser follows, which is that in the beginning, it's usually storybook romance. Everything's great, lavishing things on people and taking them out to eat and sending them flowers and doing all kinds of stuff. And then it usually then comes into isolation, which is I don't like your friends and I really don't like your parents. And so it's, I guess, if I'm with him, it's just he and I, but he loves me and maybe he'll come around or something. Then there's usually threats of violence or some threats of some kind. And then oftentimes there's real violence. There's real slapping and pushing or punching or shoving or throwing things at you or kicking your dog or strangulation even. Okay. 
that was taking place in that particular relationship, not with my daughter, but this other woman. And then all the convincing apology stuff that came after, buying her a puppy at one point, doing all kinds of stuff. And then we go back to storybook romance. You got a puppy or if he smashed your phone, he'll buy you a new one. And oh, he has his moments, rough upbringing. He came up in a foster family. Some of the stuff that he told her were complete lies. Eventually, they were separated because he had his probation. There, there were stipulations in there about drug use, and he was using drugs. And actually, she got to the point where she turned him in. She actually got in touch with his probation officer and said, look, he's up to this stuff. And they said, well, he's working his way through it. No, he's up. And she kept going to the probation officer and eventually said, I'm going to go over your head if you don't do something. He went back and he did more time. But he'd been out a few months when he was working in a restaurant. And my daughter had a part-time job because she was still in school at the restaurant. She was a waitress. He was a bartender. And that's how they met when a group of people went out and she thought he was all these wonderful things again. He was charming and he was this and that seemed very generous and nice and all that. And so, yeah, there's a pattern. So he was historically a bad guy. One of the tangents that I often find myself getting on that I became very passionate about is we are not a rehabilitating country. So he was in prison for five years and then in and out a couple of times and no rehabilitation. What are your thoughts on the lack of rehabilitation and, and what would you have liked to have seen happen before, like when you heard the story of what led up to your daughter? I do know for this guy in prison that there are anger management classes and you are graded and you are asked to put your thoughts together or write things. The best we can put together, because they can't really tell us exactly what's going on with him. They can't, which is insane, considering whatever it is, I'm under the strong impression that he has failed the classes, is what I'm trying to say. So why that is, I don't know. Lack of participation, or I don't really know. They can't be that difficult. But he has failed. And he really got, he got 15 to 30 years. Yeah, he's done 18 of the 30, let's say. And it's an annual thing, by the way. Every year, there's a there are parole reviews. People call them parole hearings. They're not. They're actually reviews. Hearing means a judge is involved, and in this case, there's not. I would like to think that there are all kinds of classes and things, but I'm skeptical. I know they try in Pennsylvania to do these things. I'm skeptical because I just don't know. A lot of these guys are con men. They know how to pass the test. That's why it's so surprising he's failed. Why wouldn't you go there and play along and they say, oh, look at that. He used to be one way, but boy, he got it. He aced this test. He knows exactly how to act. And then he's probably laughing on the way out of the classroom. I don't really have a great answer for you for that. And I would say that when they're back in society, if that ever happens, he doesn't really deserve to be because he did murder somebody horribly and he'll probably do it again. And if he doesn't murder someone, he'll ruin their life. But I think that closer supervision from probation officers. The leniency I've heard about from a lot of different people is appalling. They become friends with them. Yeah, I'm disappointed by all of that, whether it's in prison or out. When you're at the mercy of governors, too, some governors want to move people out of prisons. And look, if you did something when you were 20 and you're 85 and you're legally blind, yeah, come on out. You're probably not going to hurt too many people, wreck too many lives. But so this guy is 27 or 8 plus 18. 
Was he 45 or so? Yeah. Yeah. He could do a lot of damage. Let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the court and the trial and all. How, how did, obviously, it's, it remains an open wound. One of the points that, that you just said that really stuck with me that I love to remind people is when the judge hits the hammer, it, it's not over. Oh, no. You just move with, into a different chapter. Tell us about the court experience and and how that went. Okay. It went to a plea for one thing. So we did not go through a trial itself. Okay. So that's like a whole different thing. I'm not saying it was easy, but it was easier. Now, the way it was aimed, the way it was going was a couple of things that were already traumatic. One of them was that, that it, they figured it'd be about a week long trial. The defense It was actually a court-appointed defense lawyer, so he works for the state as much as our prosecutor works for the state. They work for the same company, so to speak. And he had worked as a prosecutor before. He was a very experienced lawyer, intimidating. I mean, he was good. And the people on our side knew him very well. Anyway, so that's the lawyer. So he's, he's not some rookie taking a crack at it. So what they did was somewhere around, I'd say a week or so, maybe three weeks before the trial was supposed to begin, they managed to get what's called a continuance because that lawyer wanted to get more, to get further evidence. He wanted more DNA testing from pieces taken from the crime scene. And so that threw us into a place, and this is leading up to Christmas. This is three weeks before Christmas, which was already going to be plenty difficult. But what happens with the continuance is they don't say, okay, so we won't do it the first week of December, which would have been pretty bad. They don't say, okay, we'll start the first week of February. They don't tell you anything. So we went through the holiday season in January, and I believe into February before we heard, okay, now we have a new date. So they moved the trial date. And I want to say, I think they were going to move it to June. It would have been practically right on the anniversary of her getting killed. That's how far they pushed that thing later. So we're like, oh my God, now we got, they moved the finish line. Somewhere in the midst of it though, surprisingly, the guy that did it steps forward with, he wants to plead. He's willing to plead to third degree, which would be 15 to 30 years, rather than go in and maybe lose on first degree and do life. That's why he did it. So that puts it on the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to decide whether they will accept it or not. They wanted to talk with the Mitchell family first. So my wife and I then, had to go to Philadelphia and sit in a room with the district attorney and the prosecution team, including detectives who had worked the case. And we needed to go in and take, we're rookies. We don't know what we're doing. Amateurs, I should say. And our job was to go in there and convince them to take the plea, to go ahead and take it. Now, you might say, why wouldn't you want them to go away for life? And one of the things that the woman who worked the case, who was our lead prosecutor, said, You have to understand you could have all the evidence in the world and still not get the result you want. And she immediately said, think of the O.J. Simpson case. Things can go wrong. And one of the things that we thought about was that you got a jury sitting there looking at this guy, say, 28, and thinking, well, her life is gone. Her life is ruined. Why ruin two lives? And by the time the defense and this guy put together a story as to what happened and what led up to that night, They could demonize her to the point where I don't think killing somebody is a good idea, but wow, maybe maybe there is some truth in what this guy's saying. He did get injured on his arms and his neck and different things. 
So who's to say who did it? So you just don't know. You don't know. You don't you don't get the perfect jury and you and you're not necessarily going to get justice. So anyway, we had to convince the prosecution team and we did. And they said, "Look, we'll go with what you want, Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell, but you have to tell us you will never come back again and say you wish you had gone the other way." They didn't want us going to the press in 6 months or 2 years and saying, "Wow, these guys shouldn't have let us do this." Mm-hmm. So we've never done that. And that's not to say we haven't thought about it many times and wish you were in prison forever, especially when you start to get to this parole reviews. The other part of it is, though, in the courtroom, because you do still go into a courtroom and it's like the plea and sentencing day, you already know what the sentencing is. You're not sitting there holding your breath saying when the judge spins the roulette wheel, what what's the number of years that, that are coming? You already know it's 15 to 30, 15 meaning we start parole reviews at 15 every year after that until he's out. But anyhow, we get into that room that day, and whenever it's supposed to start, it doesn't. And what happens instead is that the defense lawyer is in and out of the room and in and out of the room and talking to our top lawyer, the prosecutor, and it's like, what's happening? And the prosecutor came over to the the row we were sitting in there in the, in the front and said, our guy's thinking about backing out of this whole thing. He's thinking about going to trial anyway. He didn't want to go away. And she said, these people do this. They they get crazy at the end here because they're thinking I'm on the verge of being away for 15 years. Anyway, he decided finally to get back into it. And we got it done. And we did get to get up and give our impact statements. And he actually got up and he made a statement too, which I felt sorry for him. He talked about how much he loved Kristen and this is a shame and I'm sorry I did this. And to the parents and to her friends and all those things. When we got out of the courtroom, we're standing outside of the courtroom, and that's just in a hallway. There's some reporters, not like in a movie where there's 20 reporters yelling out questions. There's probably three people asking me things. But I said that I'm not at the point right now where I forgive him, but I'm working on it. And I just said all these nice things that probably sounded like, what a great guy I am. And I think for that moment, I looked at him when he was standing there giving his testimony that he was the last person that was there with her. Somehow I just felt this connection to him for a moment. So I answered about two or three questions. And the prosecutor, a woman, stepped up, held me, got arms around me, basically pulled me back from the reporters and said, okay, everybody, the Mitchells have to drive home. It's been a long day. Thank you very much. And she turned me around and basically read me the riot act about, don't you ever feel sorry for that guy? Don't you ever. He's manipulated you just like he did your daughter. He ruined her life. He took everything from her. And she gave me a blast. And thank God she did. It was like, for a moment, I was under his spell. I admit it. So we drove home exhausted, but we knew that we had at least 15 years of having some closure, let's call it. This concludes part one of two parts with David Keck of The Surviving Podcast. Be looking for part two on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, 
do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com.